You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. Today's episode is a Halloween episode, delving into the insights of one of my theological heroes, the master of horror himself, Stephen King. Oh yeah, you heard that right. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, welcome to episode 23 of the Religion and Fiction podcast. And happy Halloween or Reformation Day for those of you who are in the know, us Protestants, who have Martin Luther to thank for our wing of the church bench because of his protestations, nailing the 95 Theses to the church bulletin board at the Wittenberg Cathedral there. That's an entirely different podcast episode, because today we're going to focus on the Halloween part of the day and the traditional horrors associated with the day by delving into some of the insights of one of my theological heroes, as I mentioned in the introduction. That's right, Stephen King, master of horror himself. Because the vision of the Religion and Fiction podcast, along with a newsletter, is to explore the intersection of the sacred and story. And I think that a lot of that interplay between the two, the more religious or spiritual worldview aspects of fiction, definitely can come outside of more traditionally understood religious and Christian literature and camps, because all great stories really delve into the big questions of life, right? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Why are things so messed up? And what is the fix? And where is all this thing, this human enterprise heading? Those are the big worldview questions, creation, rebellion, rescue, and recreation. And the Christian faith has a whole lot of things to say in response to those big, deep questions, and as well as other people and other spiritualities and religions, especially storytellers. And I think one of the big contributors to that ongoing conversation regarding that second sort of aspect to the worldview story, rebellion, is Stephen King. For a while, I have read him and have appreciated how he comes at the questions regarding why things are so messed up, why we're so messed up. And I thought that today would be the perfect opportunity to engage his most recent book called Holly. Holly is titled after the main character, Holly Gibney, who came out of his detective private eye trilogy, Mr. Mercedes. Now, as a storyteller, I found it interesting, as Stephen King has talked about Holly as a character, he said that she was supposed to be sort of this walk-on character, a, a, a role that was supposed to sort of come in and come out and not have any longevity. Yet, she became one of the more popular characters he's written in recent memory. 
And for him, as the author, he said that she sort of stole his heart. And he had to keep rolling with her as a character. And he did in a novella that came out, I think it was last year, called If It Bleeds. And then comes back in her very own novel, Holly. Now, if you have not read the story, if you're planning on reading the story, if you're in the middle of reading the story, be warned, there are some major plot spoilers, especially the ending, because it's in the ending that we discover what the heck has been going on and why, as well as those deeper sort of theological worldview issues that directly relate to our questions around evil human wickedness, and the horror genre itself. Speaking of which, a few years ago, I tried my hand at writing a scary, spooky, occult suspense book called Rite of Darkness, and that is on sale for the last day today. You can grab it for $2.99 at all e-retailers, and I think you'll appreciate the similar themes that I tackle in book number seven in my Order of Thaddeus series, delving into the supernatural angle of the questions and problems of evil. All right, enough prologue. Let's dive into Stephen King's work and his insights into the horrifying human condition. Now, some of you might be wondering straight off the bat how a former pastor, someone who is seminary trained, has written Bible studies, writes religious Christian fiction, could be a Stephen King fan and would even go so far as to say he's a sort of theological hero. Totally get it and totally unexpected from my own literary tastes. (laughs) And I should clarify that most of what I've read of Stephen King and have appreciated has not been his earlier work. That was much more the classic sort of 70s, 80s, 90s horror stuff. It, I've read, uh, I think, a quarter of that book, which is probably the farthest back, uh, in addition to The Shining, but not, I haven't touched The Pet Cemetery or. Uh, Cujo or Carrie or any of those other ones at the earliest part of his literary career. Uh, Most of what I started with was actually Mr. Mercedes, which, as I mentioned, is what this Holly character and her new novel came out of. And I think I was attracted to the more private eye detective mystery aspect of his storytelling and the way that he weaved into it some of the major elements of the horror genre, as well as his commentary on the human condition and facing that condition head on with honesty and forthrightness. Because in many ways, that is really what horror is about. It's about confronting the darkness in the world and especially within ourselves. You know, the major tropes of the horror genre create relationships with monsters of all sorts, Uh, whether they're the sort of horrific alien zombie sort of creaturely type that can resemble us or the monsters that reside within. 
that twist and turn and warp the human person into monstrous actions. It's interesting because unlike the romance genre, uh, which focuses on sort of the happily ever after to the relationship equation, right? Or the mystery genre, which is about restoring order to relationships, uh, whether that's between the uh, victim and the victimizer in seeking justice for the victim or between the relationships within society and the sort of social compact that we have, the social contract between the citizen and the state. Now, here the horror genre is this study of our relationships with monsters, uh, those on the outside, but especially the inside, uh, the monstrous that comes within, which actually is the major focus of this book, Holly, unlike some of the other uh, previous iterations of Stephen King's horror canon uh, from the start of his career, this one turns inward and it confronts the dark, disturbing, thought-provoking, frightening, unsettling story of a very normal-looking couple who engages in something very abnormal and quite horrifying to the reader uh, as the reader makes their way through the story. Again, spoiler alert, 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 (laughs) okay? If you're reading the story, if you're going to read the story, stop the podcast episode now and come back to it when you're done. Uh, But for those of us who maybe aren't going to read the story, or who have, you know what's going to come. And for those who don't know what's going to come, here's what comes. The monstrous sort of hook in the book is that a young adult woman is missing. We find that out at the front end of the story. And Holly, who is running the PI firm, taken over from her former boss, Bill Hodges, And what we soon learn in a series of back-and-forth flashbacks through the past to the present is that this couple, a man and a woman who are older, octogenarians, I think, uh, 80-something, getting along in age and are creaky and in pain and falling apart, (laughs) they devise a way to extend their health and their life and their comfort through, here it is, cannibalism. Yeah, you heard that right. And you realize it about, if you're a discerning reader, probably a quarter of the way, but especially halfway through the book. And there are a number of victims, uh, I think five in all. And one of the Strokes a genius of this master storyteller is that the tension is ratcheted in the story because you already know who the antagonist characters are. Emily and Roddy Harris and the Harrises because of Roddy's research as a life sciences professor believes that they can extend their life and decrease their pain and discomfort by eating humans and slathering their fat over their arthritic joints, which is 
Emily's particular problem, uh, and Roddy eating liver and the brain matter of their victims. Yes, I know. Quite over-the-top, disgusting, and wicked to the core. Now, because this concept as a story device, cannibalism, is so utterly gut-wrenching and disgusting, I'm going to refrain from commenting back on the the details of the way the story unfolds and instead spring off from a lot of what Stephen King himself comments near the end of the book when the revelation becomes clear about the depths of the wickedness of these two people. What's fascinating about this depth is because of the two people who end up being the antagonist in the story. From the very beginning, Holly was convinced that there was a serial killer let loose in their town. Uh, The Red Bank Predator, she called this person, because of all of the clues that began to add up to connect a series of missing person cases that made it out to be this serial killer who she imagined was this demented man working solo and maybe having some sort of hapless helper along the side. Uh, But no, she comes to find out that instead, as Stephen King writes from her point of view, there is no Red Bank Predator. It should be impossible to believe, but it's not. Only two old college professors living in a neat Victorian home near a prestigious college. And that's the crux of this story, is that you have two seemingly normal, ordinary old people (laughs) living in a nice, expensive, beautiful, neat and trimmed and well-kept Victorian home in a college town that should never have seen this kind of evil or depths of evil. And yet these are the ones who are the cannibals. These are the ones who wrought the the horrifying wickedness and evil upon this town and upon these families and these young adults. And the lesson that Stephen King sort of draws from this story that unfolded from his sort of subconscious and and the one that Holly tells and the lesson that she herself learns is that evil lurks within us all. Even seemingly normal, ordinary, upper-class professors. The evil isn't out there among them. It's in here, inside even me. And here's the lesson that one of the other characters, Izzy, says. She says, This case has taught me a lesson, Gibney. Just when you think you've seen the worst human beings have to offer, you find out you're wrong. There's no end to evil. Wow, that preach or what? (laughs) And that is why I love this uh, sort of theological posture that Stephen King takes in this story, and he repeats it again later, and Holly is recalling what Izzy said, this cop. She says, just when you think you've seen the worst human beings have to offer, you find out you're wrong, Izzy said. Then added the kicker, there's no end to evil. 
man, isn't that true? Isn't that what we ourselves are experiencing in our day uh, between the the war in Eastern Europe, between the explosive, combustible situation in the Middle East and the other side of the horrifying terrorism wrought against average, normal, ordinary Israeli citizens. The reports coming out from Israel about the crazy, horrifying ordeal rivals any horror novel or any horror flick that you could imagine or might have read or might have seen. I'm not going to repeat them here, uh, but they are case exhibit A of the depths of evil and wickedness that Stephen King forces us to confront in his work of art. Again, just when you think you've seen the worst human beings can offer, you find out you're wrong. There's no end to evil. I'm going to read a bit more and then we'll kind of decamp from the book and kind of explore the more theological religious elements of this fiction and perhaps uh, kind of interrogate and probe the why behind what Stephen King and even the horror genre broadly confronts us with. Here is how Holly continues in her unpacking of these events. She says, Holly supposes she already knew that, this idea that there's no end to evil. And better than Izzy, the outsider masquerading as Terry Maitland was evil. So was the one masquerading as Chet Ondowski. The same was true of Brady Hatsfield, who found a way to go on doing dirt, Bill's phrase, even after he should have been rendered harmless, rendered that way by Holly herself. Real quick aside, these were some characters from some of the other books that Holly appeared in in this Mr. Mercedes trilogy, as well as the If It Bleeds novella. All right, so she continues, but Roddy and Emily Harris were worse. Why? Because there was nothing supernatural about them. Because you couldn't say their evil came from outside and comfort yourself with the idea that if there were malign outside forces, there were probably good ones as well. The Harris's evil was both prosaic and outlandish, like a crazy mother putting her baby in a microwave oven because he won't stop crying or a child of 12 going on a shooting rampage and killing half a dozen of his classmates. Holly isn't sure she wants to revisit a world capable of holding people like Rodney. Or like Emily, who was even worse, more calculating, and at the same time, much, much crazier. She goes on to highlight some of the more specific aspects to Emily's character in particular, how she had this journal filled with all of this rage-filled, racial, prejudicial, pejoric uh, nonsense. And he kind of used this, Stephen King, to uh, explore the depths of her own inner self, uh, that she was just a really bad person. Aside from the fact of eating people, she also was just a horrible person to people around her in what she said, in how she acted. Uh, she got revenge against a, a co-worker. So it's clear that she's a really bad person, a, a wicked person, down in her depths. Uh, but then Holly goes on to remind herself of the 
incredible contradictions between the Emily character, who was this racist homophobe, and how she presented herself on the outside. This woman who wrote all those vile things had been a respected faculty member, a winner of awards, a patron of the Reynolds Library, and an influential member of the English department even after her retirement. In 2004, she had received a plaque announcing her as the city's Woman of the Year. There was a banquet at which Emily spoke of women's empowerment. And yet, she undermined women in her department and (laughs) ate them. All right, enough about Stephen King. Let's get down to the brass tacks theology. And Stephen King doesn't address it particularly. And he doesn't even really attempt to unpack or offer an explanation for the evil and the wickedness that resides within uh, the depths of human wickedness that continue to just spool out without end. Nor should we expect him to, right? Because he's he's writing to entertain. That's the point. That's why he gets paid the big bucks and why we pay him the big bucks to continue to tell us these horrifying stories and drag ourselves into this confrontation with the monsters on the outside and on the inside. But again, as a former pastor and a person who's been theologically trained, I totally appreciate this insight and him going there with this insight and confronting us with this insight that just when you think you've seen the depths of human wickedness, uh, there's still more there. You find out you're wrong because there's no end to evil. But I think most of us pretty intuitively know that this is the case In, in our most honest days. We can be honest with ourselves that The wickedness of humanity has no end. That even within our own selves, that there is this unplumbable depth of rebellion against the way that God intended things to be. And that's the nature of our reality. Uh, Reality has ruptured. It ruptured way back at the very beginning in the garden when Mama Eve and Papa Adam decided to rebel against God by grasping after the power to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. In essence, that was that moment in the garden when they took the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That knowledge was not the information kind. It was the power kind. It was the the right to say this is the way things should be and this isn't. And ever since then, humanity has reaped the consequences of our own individual desires to pursue our own will to power, in contrast to the way that God intended things to be, resulting in a complete vandalism of shalom. That phrase, vandalism of shalom, is how one theologian Cornelius Plantinga talks about the nature of sin. And I love that because the way he defines sin is that it's not the way it's supposed to be, which presupposes that there was this original intent 
that God had for his very good creation. And then humanity stepped in and said, no, 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 no. We want things to be this way instead and ruined it all, vandalized creation, the the shalom, the peace, the wholeness, the original intent that God had for our relationships with ourselves, our relationships to creation, and ultimately our relationship to God himself. There's this post-rock indie band uh, that I love called Explosions in the Sky, and they confront and ask the questions. They interrogate this evil this that sort of permeates the world, this ruined world. And they ask in one of their songs, have you passed through this night? And in this song, they wonder where this great evil that permeates the world that Stephen King confronts us with time and time again and all the other horror greats that present a similar confrontation with the depths of darkness. They wonder how it stole itself into the world, what seed and root it has grown from. Who's killing us and robbing us of life and light and mocking us with the sight of what could have been? And then they say this at the end. They ask, is this darkness in you too? Have you passed through this night? I love the way that Explosions in the Sky, Stephen King, other writers bring about this confrontation and they ask these questions that that probe and interrogate the depths of wickedness within ourselves, but also around us. Holly Gibney mentioned the aroundness aspect of wickedness, uh, the the supernatural that she had confronted in other cases that was very easy to dismiss and write off because, hey, these people were possessed or they were sort of otherworldly. And you had these forces outside coming in and pressing themselves against people and and the world, the town, and bringing about the, the horror. Uh, but here in this story, the horror comes from inside, not the outside. The monsters aren't uh, Pennywise, the crazy, horrifying clown that continues to haunt the nightmares of everyone who reads it. <laughs> no, that's not the monster. The monster's inside. And Stephen King acknowledges that, which I appreciate. And of course, uh, the Christian faith acknowledges that. And the Bible confronts that. Uh, The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans brings about this very uncomfortable revelation that in his words in the book of Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He goes on to list this laundry list of ways that people have become rebellious and foolish and wicked in their darkened hearts. As he frames it, 
in verse 29 of chapter 1, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And then he ends this passage, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, this is the playbook for every horror writer, isn't it? Delving into the depths of human depravity and confronting us with the monster within who we are. Paul writes later in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all rebels. We're born that way. And then he says what we deserve is death. That's the wage for our sins. Which makes sense when you look at this laundry list that Paul lays out. Each of us can find ourselves in that list of things that we have done in the past, things that we do now that are in rebellion to the way that God wanted things to be, in the way we treat him, in the way we treat our neighbor. Paul doesn't let us get away with saying, well, that's not me. I don't deserve death. I'm not that bad. Well, don't take Paul's word for it, because Stephen King doesn't let us get away with it either. What does he reveal in the characters, Emily and Roddy? Again, two very normal-appearing people who were respectable, who were good at times, probably more so in the past uh, than the present of this story, but somehow they descended into this cannibalism. Again, just when you think you've seen the worst human beings have to offer, you find out you're wrong. There's no end to evil. That is the message that Stephen King has in Holly. That's the message he confronts us with in this horrifying story, which as a pastor and a theologian, I appreciate. I will add one more thought before we end this sort of uh, exposition on Stephen King's theological posture towards the problems of evil and human nature. And that is his exploration of the more supernatural and I would say demonic, malevolent forces at work in the world. Now, Holly was much more concerned, I think, with the unplumbable depths of human wickedness. But elsewhere in the broader body of work uh, of Stephen King, he does touch on these sort of mystical supernatural forces at work, whether they're sort of the ghostly that you find in The Standing even in Holly, uh, she herself, in writing up her report, reflecting on the depravity of Emily and Roddy, recognized that it was internal rather than external and rather than supernatural like some of the other people who she had tracked down and came up against who were sort of possessed and overtaken by supernatural forces. Another recent book that touches on this theological reality of the supernatural principalities and powers of this present darkness is sort of a Pulp Fiction-style book called Later. 
And in it, one of the main characters, who is a teenager actually, wrestles with this malevolent force. And I won't go into the whole details of the story, uh, but one of the characters sort of confronts him. And he has this bit of advice about his desire to pursue this supernatural power. Here's what the character advises. He says, I wonder, you were incredibly brave, but you were also incredibly lucky. You don't understand because you're just a child, but take my word for it. That thing is from outside the universe. There are horrors there that no man can conceive of. If you truck with it, you risk death or madness, or the destruction of your very soul. Now, I don't know what Stephen King's perspective and opinion and beliefs are concerning the devil and the evil one and the supernatural forces of this present darkness, but I really like this uh, sort of warning that this character gives not to tangle with the devil and this recognition that there are these horrifying forces in the universe that wage war against our very soul. In our modern world, that's pretty difficult for us to conceive of, isn't it? In a world that we can think we can control the uh, weather and the climate and have all the information we could ever dream of at our very fingertips thanks to the hard sciences, technology. But we would do well to heed Brother theologian king and his advice to take those forces in the universe seriously. Obviously, in the Christian religion, the Apostle Paul takes those forces seriously in his letter to the Church of Ephesus, warning that our struggle in this world isn't against flesh and blood people. In reality, it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Again, I don't know King's specific posture regarding the actual presence of these sorts of forces working in the world, but I have to believe that he has this sense of things, uh, because much of his work is this relationship between the monsters internally, as we've talked about, but also those monsters externally, which he posits as being also these sort of bigger systemic issues, Uh, childhood abuse, racism, domestic abuse, and these other larger systemic forces in the world. So I don't know if those are sort of these monsters that he envisions are stand-ins for these very human forces or these uh, horrifying forces in the universe, as he speaks of in this advice to this kiddo in later. But I think that there is something to take away from his observation for people broadly, but especially religious people uh, who care about what Paul is speaking about and how to relate that to their world. I'll admit that as a evangelical Protestant, the sort of supernatural spiritual aspect of our daily life has been missing in my own personal walk in the last 
really up into the last few years. When I dived deep into uh, this very aspect of the world, um, Ephesians 6 that Paul speaks of, the the supernatural forces of this present darkness, uh, that I began this exploration as a storyteller in my book, Fallen Ones, in the Order of Thaddeus series. But more recently, I've really dive deeper into the more supernatural aspects of living and life in my Group X Cases series, which is sort of the church's X-Files, if you will, taking on uh, these inexplicable supernatural uh, investigations. I'm actually working on the fourth book of that right now, and there's a lot of interesting stuff, uh, a lot of interesting fascinating connections between our seen reality and the unseen realm that I think we need to be aware of and mindful of and unpack and appreciate on a daily basis in our daily life and spiritual journey. Interestingly, I saw a tweet from a a black professor, Anthony Bradley, who spoke of black churches and how every Sunday there is this absolute mention of the devil and his work in the world, how you can't escape this deep recognition and warning against the malevolent forces of the evil one as it presses in against our daily life uh, and how the gospel through Christ's victory because of his life, death and resurrection gives us ourselves victory over the horrifying forces in the universe that Stephen King warned about in later. I think I'll do another podcast episode on this very topic and maybe tie it into my own exploration through my own religious fiction writing. Uh, But suffice it to say, Stephen King offers a whole host of theological insights into the way that wickedness and evil finds itself and presses into the world, not only uh, outside of ourselves through these monsters, the supernatural kind, the systemic kind, but especially inside us and through us to perpetuate wickedness and evil and darkness against our neighbor. As you can tell, I really appreciated Stephen King's theological perspective, probably without him being all that intentional about being theological, (laughs) but there's a lot going on here that I appreciate. I will say this, though, about the only thing I didn't care entirely for with the book, uh, which really isn't his fault per se, because he sort of leaves the major thematic core of this inner evil unresolved. Towards the end, when Holly uh, finally confronts the monsters and triumphs, uh, good over evil, classic, tropish ending to horror stories, the victory of good over evil, she's writing her preliminary report. And this is how she sort of works through the resolution to this horrifying confrontation. Holly writes a preliminary report setting out everything that she's discovered partly through her own investigation and partly because the universe threw her a couple of ropes. She likes to think, but doesn't quite believe, there's a kind of providence at work in matters of right and wrong, blind but powerful, like the statue of Lady Justice, 
holding out her scales, that there's a force in the affairs of men and women standing on the side of the weak and unsuspecting, and against evil. It may be too late for Bonnie and the others, but if there are no future victims, that's a win. She likes to think of herself as one of the good guys. Smoking aside, of course. There you have it. There's sort of the fix to the problem of evil, our own internal evil, that there is this vague sort of force out of the universe that will balance things in the end, and that uh, our own sort of gumption and ingenuity from the good guys will triumph over the forces of evil, both the monsters on the outside coming in as well as the monsters within coming out. Again, I'm not expecting Preacher King here to offer up a soapboxing come-to-Jesus moment, uh, you know, gospel choir and all sort of scenario. Uh, But I think, you know, here is the opportunity as Christians, as religious people who are sort of exploring this intersection of the sacred and story to bring out what the vintage Christian faith has to say about this problem. And that's, it's already been dealt with. The cross of Christ is the point at which God dealt objectively with the problems of evil, taking away the sins of the world, literally placing those sins and its entire punishment upon Christ. He drank dry the cup of wrath that Paul spoke of earlier in the book of Romans paying our price in our place. Ultimately, that's the final solution to the horrors that we confront every day in this world. The monsters overseas, Russia, Hamas, the monsters in our own backyard with the horrifying school shootings and the serial killer that just terrorized a small main town right here in America. Yeah, evil still exists, but the hope is that it will ultimately be dealt with. Jesus Christ himself, King Jesus, will lay down the smack when he returns and make all things new. And in the meantime, for us personally, who deal with the inner monsters, we can run to him to find forgiveness, grace, and mercy in this life and in the life to come. Thanks for sitting with me at the intersection of the sacred and story by exploring Stephen King's sermonette on the nature of evil and our own inner monsters. I hope to do this regularly, drawing out the inspiring, insightful religious elements from our favorite fiction. Next podcast will feature the next book club, so stay tuned for more details. In the meantime, happy reading.